Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Alyssa Berry, co-founder of IR Labs. Her and her partner have built up a list of public company clients that are trusting them to take their IR further. When I say further, I mean going beyond the administrative and black and white press releases. Through gaining trust of their clients, they're using different tools and techniques to actually showcase and demonstrate who their clients are to investors. One area where Alyssa and I really align is on investing in investor branding and creating a sales and marketing program that enables investors to easily understand your business. Alyssa also talks to us about how some of the changes in IR are happening. For example, the role of technology. Both of us shared their excitement about this because we really see that we're at the early stage for public companies to embrace and leverage the power of technology to reach and engage new investors. Anyone in the IR or the C-suite should definitely listen to this interview. And everyone else, you'll surely learn something about the crucial role that investor relations is playing in building public companies. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, on with the show. Alyssa, welcome to the show. Hey, Corey. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. I'm looking forward to our conversation as I reached out to you because I came across some of the work you do with you and your co-founder with IR Labs. And I think there's a lot of experience and I think you've built up a really interesting firm in the investor relations space very quickly. So yeah, I'm keen to have this conversation. The best thing I can do is hand it over to you for an introduction from yourself. Yeah, thank you so much for reaching out, Corey. That was very kind of you. And I've been looking forward to this conversation. Investor relations is my career, but it's also a topic that I'm super passionate about. And as we go through this conversation today, I think you'll hear a lot about how we're doing things differently. We're working in a very unique environment right now, and we're having a lot of fun thinking outside the box and getting creative. Yes. Well, when it comes to IR, it comes to to communicating to investors. That's what I was, when I heard that, I'm like, okay, like, let's start talking about this because I think issuers need to, need to break the mold. They need to recognize that there's a lot of value in doing things a little bit differently in standing out and getting recognized. And that doesn't mean promoting with BS influencers kind of thing. It means doing good work. So I hope we can get into all sorts of tips, tactics, all that kind of good stuff and the stories of what to do and don't. But let's talk, Ira. Let's start with your philosophy on this and kind of that approach to serving clients. How are you doing this? Yeah, so maybe I'll just start from taking it a step back. So my business partner and I, we actually began our careers in-house investor relations. So we've been in the seat of supporting board meetings, developing strategy, buy side, sell side, roadshows, AGMs, writing the MDNAs, the proxy circulars. Like We've been through it all. And I think that's given us a really good foundation for the business that we've ultimately built. I took a very brief pivot for about six years and I became a shareholder activist. And I was actually on the other side of the fence at that point the side that the issuer does not want me to be on, ultimately, as the activist. And I went through about 10 proxy fights. Some of those were settlements that happened, uh, which we could talk about and get into if, if you so wish. But I learned a lot around value creation and creating value for shareholders. It's a phrase that everyone throws into their press releases and 
annual letter to their shareholders and it comes up on the analyst calls in the scripts. But it actually isn't that hard to do if you do the right things. And I know that's easy for me to say sitting here on this podcast with you. I'm not in the driver's seat of all of these these different businesses, but I've worked with so many CEOs and boards over the years where there really is a bit of a formula to it. And as long as you have a really great foundation of corporate governance, a really good strategy, and you do an excellent job of communicating that to the market, again, I'm oversimplifying it, but it's not rocket science. And so what we've been able to do, and you asked the question around approach, my business partner and I, we, we got together, we said, what are all the things that we need to do to be successful in our roles as IROs, investor relations officers, as we often get tagged as? So that role has evolved from one where you're picking up the phone and booking meetings. And it's no longer just putting a press release on the news wires. I like to refer to the IR job as the junk drawer job. It's basically all of these (laughs) things that no one else wants to do. It's a position that's evolved from, I have to be an analyst. I've got to be an excellent copywriter. I better know public relations and be ready to talk to the media. I probably need to be a graphic designer now. I need to know social media. And that doesn't mean LinkedIn and Facebook. It means Twitter spaces and Reddit. And it's so vast, which is why I love the career so much. And so we put together a platform that touches on all of those different elements. And so I'm really proud of the team we've put together. We've got capital markets experts. We've got copywriters. We've got digital marketing experts on our team. Of course, all of our senior leadership that drives the relationships and strategies with our clients and everything from events and roadshows. It's really kind of a one-stop shop for our clients to be as effective as we possibly can be. And in these markets, I think everyone can agree, there's no one magic solution to great investor relations, liquidity, and ultimately share price performance. You kind of have to try and test several things to be effective. Yeah, it's the junk drawer of, of activities. I laugh at that, but when you look at it, the expectations on investor relations now in a really dynamic market with so many different channels to speak to retail and institutions has completely changed. And it's the thing that I always refer to is once you become a public company, you now have two companies to run, the one that faces the customers and the one that faces the investors. And it takes a lot of work. So really interesting to to hear that background there. How do you approach or what do you think issuers need to know about IR and and investor relations? Because there is no silver bullet, as you make the point. There's nothing that always works or just a, this is going to work. So how do you approach that? What do they need to know? Really great question. So there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is you need to be a really great storyteller. And I'm an investor myself. I go read the MDNA, the last letter to shareholders. Sometimes I'll go through an annual information form to understand business strategy, like all investors do. And if you're telling the same thing for five years in a row without much update other than maybe some numbers, I question whether that's an effective way to communicate your strategy to your investors. So I think just doing a really good job of the storytelling, you'd be surprised how many times I have clients come to me who have said, my my story's just not resonating. And sometimes companies just get so immersed in the day-to-day, taking a step back and understanding what does the investor want to know and how should I position this for them? So there's a storytelling component for sure. This is very much just like investor relations says, it's a relationship-based business. So I think we've evolved into something over the last couple of years, which has been both very beneficial, but also very challenging for issuers where there's this idea around digital marketing, which we've talked about how you and I both know this space and it's a space that you play in as well. Of course, it's excellent to reach retail investors that way, but I see that as just a tool to get to that investor, and then I have to build that relationship. And what I mean by that is a lot of companies, they want ultimately to be able to raise capital. And I think it's really important that we get to investors before we need their money, (laughs) So, to put it quite simply. And so it's really building up a roster of people who are following your story, 
quarter over quarter. And I like to put a sales hat on when it comes to investor relations. You know, when we're running our different programs and strategies, or even someone subscribes to your newsletter on your website, oh my God, that's a warm lead. We should be calling, we should be reaching out, nurturing, email, text, whatever, not in a harassing way, but hi, thank you so much for following our business. Let me know if you want to chat. And I think that's a step that it takes time, it takes energy. And I don't think AI is quite there yet in terms of building relationships. So I think that's our pivotal role as investor relations professionals. I appreciate you saying that. And I think that well, I want to to frame that up a bit of, of as I'm hearing it, and hopefully, you know, issuers can use this to better understand what it takes now to be differentiated in a market where there's thousands of opportunities to place your money. So, digital is the the act of bringing people in, even at scale, and starting to nurture them. And I mean, nurturing is is our jargon, marketers' jargon for for starting to build that relationship, build the the recognition for who you are as a company and what you're doing. And all of that as a funnel is bringing you down to a point of converting. And if that takes an offline conversation, then that's what it takes, or they might do it themselves. So another thing that I think is a good point to be made there is, is being personable. What I've seen with a lot of companies is they're, they're so black and white and speak in the third person, whereas a company we've been doing the dance with came out and with their press releases. And now it's really like, I would love to speak with you. Please reach out. And this is a billion dollar organization. It's not just some run of the mill. I was like cheering for them. I'm like, yes, finally be a person because it's people behind the company that investors are betting on. So that's my, my soapbox here, but perhaps it resonates with you. Well, you're speaking to the converted there for sure. Yeah. How do you think in your time in investor relations and coming out of working in-house to to having your own firm, how has investor relations changed? I know you've touched on some of these, but maybe you can get deeper into them for us. Yeah, absolutely. The industry has evolved a lot since I started. And I remember getting into IR. There's no school for IR. And perhaps arguably the TSX manual is a good way to start. And I remember reading it front to back multiple times to make sure I understood everything that was in there. So, you know, there you go. That's the school of IR. But essentially, we've seen, obviously, technology and the way that digital has gone has really disrupted our industry. We can talk a little bit about AI, which we're incorporating a lot into our day-to-day with our clients. Again, I think it's just coming back to having to be very efficient with our resources. So we know that we're all operating in really unique markets. And I'd say arguably over the last decade plus, it's been a lot more challenging for companies, probably more so than ever before to get visibility. And just making sure that we're thinking outside the box. And I'd love to give some practical examples, because I think everyone wants to know what the playbook is. And like I said, there's no magic formula, but let's just share a couple of ideas. So a lot of companies that we represent or work with have products and services. And I really believe that for an investor to be an advocate or want to invest in a company, you know, they should try, touch, feel, taste, whatever the product or service to really get behind it as a cheerleader. I'm a really big believer, and I talk about this all the time in a lot of the work that we do, is building community and fans and followers. And so, for example, take a CPG company. We have a couple of them in our portfolio. We take their products and services and put them in really nice goodie bags with some cool investor postcards with a QR code. And we'll drop those off to brokers. We'll drop them off to investors. It's one way to actually read a press release about, call it a plant-based food product, for example, but to actually take it home, try it, give it to your husband or wife or have your kids. And, oh, wow, this actually tastes good. Or, or oh gosh, this is terrible. I'm not going to invest in this. Hopefully that's not the case. <laughs> I really think that that's becoming really important. We can talk about momentum and, you know, everyone wants to get in on the latest and greatest that's I'm going to go fly to the moon and and make a quick buck. But I think we're kind of coming back to fundamental investors all over again. We've seen so many bad actors and things happen in the market um, that we, I don't have to get into in detail here, but we all know over the last couple of years, 
I think we're seeing investors actually focus on the fundamentals. What are the numbers? Who actually is behind this company? Is this the right management team to ultimately deliver for me? And that's me putting my activist hat on a little bit too. It starts at the top and making sure you've got really strong leadership and management. I probably digressed a little bit from your question, Corey. That's all right. You know what? I like you going down the path of the examples. And I just want to touch on an example of a CPG company. It just came to mind for me that every investor out there says something to themselves or to somebody else along the lines of, I like this company because... and. To me, that is an emotional statement. I like this company. I've said those. I've seen other people in boardrooms say it. That is how we approach putting together our thesis, our argument. And so what I'm getting at there is finding ways to help people wrap their heads around and start with a bit of emotion because then it will take them into the logic to support what they're feeling. Totally. Absolutely. And I'll give you another example that just popped into my mind. I've got so many of them, but the earnings call. Do you know how many companies still have a one eight six six dial-in earnings call or don't even have them anymore, which is another conversation. But I'm doing this podcast with you virtually. I can see you right now as we're speaking. And some people I'm sure are going to be listening and, and maybe there's a way for them to see our video here as well. But it's seeing someone on screen is something that we've all been privy to probably way too much every day since uh, the beginning of COVID. But why are earnings calls not being taking place this way? And yes. seeing someone and building a relationship with a CEO or a CFO or a COO, usually the C-suite who's taking those quarterly earnings calls, there's a lot of technology that is really simple to adopt. And our emotional, you know, I've spoken a couple of times by phone, but that emotional connection is going to grow that much more when I can see you. And then I'm going to see you in person one day and that'll continue and our relationship will build really easy wins. It was about two and a half years ago, well, in the middle of COVID, I started doing my earnings calls via Zoom. And what I did, though, because there could be an argument, well, you follow a script and no one wants to watch a a CEO, you know, with their forehead down as they're reading, well, get rid of the script. No one wants to hear you regurgitate your earnings, you know, paragraphs that were in the, the press release. Hey, everyone, we've issued our press release earlier today. Hopefully everyone's had a chance to read it. Here's the top four highlights. Let's open it up for questions. Jump to that part that everybody wants to listen to anyway. So I I think a lot of what we're doing is trying to go, okay, what are the functions of investor relations and how they existed over the last 20 years? And then let's just kind of blow them all up or modify them for today's investor. So cool. What comes to mind there is, have you seen uh, Netflix earnings? When they announce? No. Oh, yes, I have. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, of course. I thought you were talking about some new show called Earnings. I was like, no, oh. this is, <laughs> oh, maybe this is what I'm doing on Friday night. <laughs> have you binge watched the Netflix show Earnings yet? No. <laughs> <laughs> their earnings calls, they do them and they're very dynamic. They have an analyst on there. Yes. That's a really great example. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, it's just, I look and to me, this is investor brand building. This is branding. What is branding? And the silliest, but probably best analogy I ever heard about branding was what do you do with a cow? You brand it with the ranch. And now it's stuck in there. You can tell you're from Alberta, Corey. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually originally from Vancouver, but okay. 13 years in Calgary. Look what it's done to you. Put a, an interesting spin. Yeah. But you're right. You're so right. And you're probably far more interested in watching something like that, right, than to to dial in. And here's another crazy idea. Let's say, again, let's stick on the CPG idea. You're head of product. Have them join the earnings call. They're going to have to be briefed and scripted and in some way um, so that, you know, if they're not used to speaking to investors. But how cool is it that investors can see others beyond the C-suite and, and see the additional bench strength? There's so much you can do now. Yeah. Steve Jobs did it, right? With his earnings calls. He walks on stage and does his presentation. He was doing that decades ago, right? Yes. I was reading something about the difference between Apple and Steve Jobs earliest. When they first came out with the iPod, the first presentation, it was it was revolutionary in itself. You know, a thousand songs in your pocket, however he framed it. But he put a ton of facts and figures into it. By 2007, when the iPhone came out, it was almost no facts or figures. It was all 
just emotional appeal. And that was a revolutionary time when they broke that product. I mean, it's, it's changed how we communicate, full stop. But there was a very interesting change there between facts and figures, which is a typical investor call almost or earnings call, to coming forward and, and speaking with a ton of, of emotion to what they were doing. Now, how do we tie that into the discussion of earnings calls and what's done there? I think the takeaway for me is like, I like your point of, you know, bring the, the head of product in, bring the CTO in, bring whoever is, is instrumental in the team to taking the next leap or to achieving the progress that the company's had. It, it builds a lot of character with the company. So yeah, it's so much there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's talk about the mix between retail and institutional investors. What is your take on this? You know, we often hear from from earlier stage, more junior pubcos, oh, I just want institutional investors. But there's a lot more to that. What is your experience with the mix there? Really great question. And I think one that's on a lot of CEOs' minds. We did nine IPOs over the last couple of years. And, you know, we're fortunate enough to get involved early and work with some really incredible founders. But some of those founders have never operated in the public markets before. So it's their first time going public. And what we hear all the time is exactly what you just told me that investors want retail or they want institutional. But the reality is you need retail in order to get the institutional investors. No institutional investor is going to or be very rare that someone with a 50 million market cap, sub 50 million is with very low liquidity is going to invest. So you need to build up that retail base and followers. And it's it's kind of a blessing and a curse uh, in some ways. I know retail is extremely challenging to navigate through. And sometimes they're not fundamental investors. They're there for their five to 10 cent pop, and then they're out. But you definitely need to build that base in order to be successful on the institutional side. And I would say, go to institutional when you're ready. It's kind of like handing in your best homework for maybe your thesis in university or your doctorate or whatever you're doing, they have uh, very long memory spans like elephants. So if you walk in there with a deck that is a disaster and an ask that is not clear and a story that's not cohesive, getting that you're lucky enough if you've gotten the gotten in the room. So that's great. So do everything you can to to shine. But on the flip side of that, you know, until you're ready just wait so that you can really put your best foot forward. Okay. I think that's an interesting point of putting your best foot forward and kind of almost taking your lumps with retail, making the mistakes early, recognizing that it's going to be a journey and it's not an event. And and frankly, it's next to impossible to have a float that is 90% owned by by institutions when you're just a little $50 million co. So what tactics are you seeing that are successful? And I know that we there's no silver bullet, but to, to reach and engage retail? And what do you wish issuers would be doing more of? Again, starting with making sure your story is really solid and everything needs to be storytelling and you need to storyboard as much as possible. And I'm also a big fan of recycling content. And sometimes issuers or my clients will say, you know, we already said that a couple of months ago or whatever. But it's still relevant. So it's it's kind of marketing 101. I don't know what that stat is, but you need to see something eight times for it to right. for you to register it or whatever that is. It's kind of like the same thing in investor relations or in the public markets. You're kind of marketing to investors ultimately, right? So I would say definitely making sure your deck is solid. There's so many things you can do to your investor deck now. So especially if you're going to go out and meet investors, add QR codes. Everyone's got video nowadays, or most people do. So linking to video, making your deck dynamic, you know, how easy is it within your investor presentation to add a link that clicks to the recent quarter MD&A? You'd be surprised how many people actually do that. It's just almost making the investor's job as easy as possible so that they can get the information that they need. Yeah. But there's so many things that you can do that are, are really simple wins. And so, so that's one of them. There's strategies around locking down your investor deck and, and entering email addresses and using that as a lead gen. You know, I've seen that. I don't necessarily love it. But really treating every inbound as a warm lead, as I referenced, 
and going to conferences. So I think everyone now is really excited to get back out there. Everyone's feeling excited to meet people again and, and travel. And, and there's a lot of really interesting events that are happening all over the world right now. And a lot of companies taking advantage. But you'd be surprised how many people are, t- they bring their business cards back and they throw them into the MailChimp or the database and that's it. And then, oh gosh, like I wish I had more investors and like really, and then kind of complaining about poor liquidity or whatever else. And I appreciate sometimes, you know, people are busy. And as you referenced, you're kind of running two businesses, your your day to day, and then you're managing your investor expectations on the other side, reaching out, sending a personalized note of thanks. It was really great to meet you. And, and I hope we get a chance to meet again, you know, to the extent that that, you know, there's an opportunity to build a relationship there. So making sure that every lead is essentially leveraged. And then how cool is it that you meet Steve at the conference in Florida And he says, you know what, when you're back out here next quarter, making sure that that is tagged and flagged and it takes time. And then you got to remember to find that information again, not just a note that's on the back of the business card and thrown on the desk, you know, call when we're in Florida next, but making sure that you actually follow through with that. And you never know where those those relationships go. We've been hosting a lot of webinars for our clients, and it's been really effective. And we actually had one investor who watched one of our webinars. We followed up to say thanks so much for attending. And then, okay, thanks. You know, look at the really great results that they had this past quarter. Thought you might be interested. Let us know if you want to chat and have a one-on-one. And they participated in a private placement in a really meaningful way for one of our clients. So it's putting in the work. Investor relations is not easy. It's putting in the work ultimately. If we were CEOs of these issuers and they're selling a product or a service to their customers, what do they have? They've got a a sales and marketing function. And ideally, if they're worth their salt, that's a very well-structured sales and marketing program. Marketing attracts the interest in, continues to to build the awareness of it. And finally, somebody says, I'm interested and gives them the card. They get a business card. What does the sales team do? They put it in the CRM. They take a note. They follow up, send a personal email, follow up again, say, hey, are you going to be here? We're going to be at this conference. We'll see you then. Hey, they sell the product. That's the exact same thing we're doing. Exactly. It's the exact same thing. Yeah. Like I said, it's effort. That's not something you throw, you throw money at the campaigns that we launch, but it's taking the results of those and actually nurturing those relationships. Yeah. Kind of watering the seeds and seeing them, bringing them to harvest. So how is an IR pro, and this perhaps when you were in-house, how do you allocate your time? If you had a pie chart of time that's allocated out, what does that look like? Or if you were to say ideal best practice, you think it should be something like this? What do you think? Really great question. And I'd be curious to ask a lot of IR professionals how they're spending their time. And I think everyone is going to give you a different answer. I would say part of me, my my gut response to that is I spend half the time managing my CEO's expectations and then I spend the other half managing the investor expectations. So it's such a unique role that we have. I'm sure there are some IR professionals who spend a lot of time supporting the board with corporate governance and corporate secretary type of work. That's something that ends up falling on our plates from time to time. Other IR professionals spend so much time just writing press releases. Some companies believe that a press release is a strategy and they need to put one out every two days or so. It really, really depends. I know for us, we spend a lot of time on actual execution. And what I mean by that is actually writing the press releases, managing the social media, engaging on social as well, making sure that all of these relationships are nurtured as I as I referenced. And I think our jobs are evolving into one where there's a lot of content creation and insightful newsletters and blog posts and thought leadership pieces that investor relations professionals are now having to uh, having to write. I started out wanting to become a journalist. And I pivoted, which was at the beginning of the kind of demise of mainstream media, which is great, because I probably would never have made any money as a journalist. But leveraging those skill sets as a writer to serve my clients, we actually, I hire based on writing skills. There's a lot of other things too. Writing is just so critical in our jobs now. Yeah. You know, when you talk about 
writing and kind of the thought leadership pieces here, something comes to mind. We actually just posted a piece about thought leadership, about, you know, using that as the, as a tool to, to build interest and awareness. And I, and I hate the term. It's just so jargony to me. But one company who I think has done a really good job at this is Sandstorm Gold. Because if you go and type in gold royalty corps or gold royalty companies, one, there's a company called Gold Royalty. And they're somewhere on the page, but above them is Sandstorm Gold saying, what is a royalty company? And you go there and there's a really nice web page all about how their business model works. And I would argue retail eat that up because they think that it's, you know, it's a good space to be. And analysts probably reference it because they have to remind themselves of what really is going on in that industry or that space. And where to take that point is I think also, I think we give too much, not too much credit, but we, we expect too much out of the analyst community to fully understand what an individual issuer actually does and how their business model works. It just, they have too much on their plate. No, the, that's such a great point. And yeah, I, I agree with you, the throwing around the word thought leadership, everyone wants to be a thought leader and all that. But I guess the definition in the context of what we're talking about is actually creating content pieces that are going to be really useful for the investment community. So let's just say you're a REIT writing a really cool piece on the industry, the space, the asset class, whatever it is you're in. That all helps from an SEO perspective, which is why Sandstorm is at the top of the list there, because the internet is picking up that that's really important for all the reasons that I'm sure they created that piece for. So that's really critical. And I think that's just an easy win, a really, really easy win. Again, it takes time and energy to create these pieces. But if you can really nail like a, a really awesome kind of white paper type of piece, that can be leveraged for, for a really long time. And then you mentioned about the analysts. So the analysts, that whole industry has evolved so much. And I'm not going to profess to be an expert on all the rules and regulations that have kind of come into the into place in Europe, which have essentially disrupted that space. MIFID too, if I remember. Yeah, it's all the MIFID rules. But the analyst, like the small cap, nano cap, micro cap, whatever it is, issuers probably are not going to get analyst coverage. And this is another thing where a company goes public and expects that they're going to get, I only want institutional, I only want to focus on institutional, only give me institutional investors. So that's hard to manage through. And the other piece is, I just want analyst coverage. So you and I and everyone else probably knows it's a bit of a pay to play game. So if you're not, if you're not doing business with the banks, your likelihood of having coverage is small, but it's not impossible. And on that note, though, I'm a big believer in regardless, build the relationships with the analyst because that analyst is talking to investors all day long. So if they don't cover that company and you're too small, you're a clean tech that just came out and, you know, you're probably far off of getting analyst coverage, use that as an opportunity to reach out to the analyst and educate them on who you are and what you're doing and how you're different than all the other companies that they cover. Not in a way that you're trying to convince them or sell them, but really more so we're out here. We just wanted to let you know that we exist and here's what we do and how it's a little bit different. Maybe you can share that thought leadership piece with them that you've created as well that might help make their jobs easier. You never know where that takes you. I think it's important to invest time and energy there as well because I, I have seen some really good return on that strategy. I want to switch gears here and go back to some of your, your earlier career about being an activist. Tell us about that, because I think that it's not something that a lot of people think about and it can until perhaps they're in a situation where they should have been thinking about it. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I never thought I would become a shareholder activist. And I remember going to my very, very first AGM as an investor relations professional and this guy in Toronto, I think it was at the, the TSX, the gallery room, very common place for a lot of AGMs to have been held. He came up to me and he's like, I'm going to go activist on you. <laughs> and like, you know, he said that not to me specific, he said it to me specifically, but meant, you know, for our company. I remember sitting down with my CEO afterwards and we debrief and who all attended and, you know, what did you think of this? And I brought it up and it was just one of those comments that, you know what, that, that'll never happen to us and don't worry about it. And it didn't happen, thank goodness. But nowadays, those threats I would probably take 
a lot more seriously given my experience. So essentially what happened for me is we became investors focusing on the real estate space specifically and seeing a massive disconnect between where companies were trading and what they were ultimately worth, which I think there's a lot of those opportunities available in the markets today, some that are probably trading where they belong, but others that are trading for massive discounts. And we're seeing it every day where companies actually have more cash in the bank than what their market cap is today. Yeah. So I think we're going to see a big resurgence of activism post-COVID here. And maybe we've been saying post-COVID for a year or so, but I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And it was a really interesting experience for me to be on that side of critiquing the proxy circulars and governance and strategy. I think it's important to understand though, and from an activist perspective, if an activist is a good activist, they're actually, their ultimate goal is to create value for all shareholders. And they need to have a level of influence. So coming out with very small ownership position will probably diminish your opportunity or chances of succeeding with whatever your your end goal is with uh, with the company. But it, it's essentially coming out and saying, look, like you're trading at a discount. We think you're at two dollars. We think you're worth seven. And here's a plan or some ideas on how to get there. And any of the activists that I've seen successful and where we had success as an activist, it was we were putting forward the individuals. So from a governance perspective, the right people that we believed through a very rigorous process that we would undertake could actually execute on a plan that we would communicate. So coming out and saying, we think you're worth seven, you're trading, you know, at two or whatever it may be is one thing, but it's actually justifying it and mapping out a pathway to success. And in some ways, again, I was drinking the Kool-Aid for a little bit. So forgive me in these comments, but the activist is actually giving kind of free advice (laughs) to the company. So you can go hire a banker and pay them exorbitant fees to come up with a to do a strategic review or look at alternatives. But Often, if you've got really a good shareholder base, and if you're building relationships with your shareholders, listening to them and actually hearing them out, sometimes the ideas can be absolutely bonkers. And I know as an IR professional, if I took every piece of advice that every frustrated shareholder gave me and even brought that up to management, I'd be laughed out of the room. But sometimes there are some really great suggestions and and ideas, and especially when investors have a lot of skin in the game. It was a very interesting time in my life and the stories of actually being in a proxy fight for any of your listeners who maybe have or or even haven't been through a proxy experience who want to reach out and talk about it, I'd be happy to. There definitely is a little bit of a playbook and a formula to it, believe it or not. But every fight I've been in has always taken interesting twists and turns. Can you build on that a bit? I'm I'm curious about some of those stories and Something comes to mind, I know a company right now, and they've been going through a bit of an activist battle. And even some of the press releases that have come out have almost like been a bit antagonistic to diminish the their opponent and saying like, they're little bid. How does this work? If I was a CEO of a $100 million company, I don't know if that's a fair number to, to start to work from or whatever it is. And we had shareholders who came together and said, we think you can be doing better. And I come to you and and what's going to go on? What are some of the stories that have happened in this? Yeah, let me kind of play out your your question there. So you've got your $100 million market cap company and an activist has come forward. So there's a lot of self-reflection that needs to happen and you need to park ego and emotion and go, okay, do they actually have something here? So first of all, is the ownership position meaningful enough? Sometimes the activists will disclose that right away and sometimes they won't. Some will come out announcing they're over 10%. And in Canada, we have guidelines or there's a regulatory framework where over 10%, we become having to report our ownership position. So there's all sorts of strategy in there to what, whether you should kind of take this investor serious or not. Looking at track record, if that activist has been in five fights and they've won every single one of them, I'd be calling my advisors really, really, really fast because you can imagine that they've probably been doing their due diligence and research for not one or two months. They could have been looking at the company for for years. And the other thing that you kind of have to reflect on is, is the argument 
valid. And again, if someone sent me a letter criticizing me, just human nature, I'm going to have my back up against the wall. But I think it's just making sure that you're bringing in your board members, maybe some, you know, some of the C-suite, you know, if I'm the CEO who got the letter, take it very seriously and go, do they actually have something here? So I've seen situations where you've got board members, when you add up their tenure, they've been in the boardroom for 90 years. When you add up every, like, that's a little bit of a problem. We haven't refreshed in a while. Maybe we've had one or two failed acquisitions. Our share price is lagging. Maybe we haven't adopted some of the recent changes in corporate governance. Yeah, you probably should think really long and hard and do some self-reflection over, should we sit down with this group? And I think just remember that being on a board is not a glamorous job. If I'm an activist and I'm now trying to get in your boardroom, I have reporting obligations. You know, if I'm going to be selling out my shares, everyone's going to know it because I'm a board member. And so, and I'm also going to be privy to blackout periods and all these, like, it's not great trying to get in that boardroom. I would love nothing more than the activist wants to make money at the end of the day on their investment. So the management team can take the plan and give the the activists some comfort that they're going to actually execute on that. It's really a win-win for everybody. Really interesting. I think it's something cautionary. And, and I really appreciate the advice of like, you got to take your ego out of this and take a moment to, to do some self-reflection and see if there's something there. Oh, for sure. And even the activist as well, taking the emotion out of it. And you mentioned these letters that you're, you're seeing on a, another proxy fight that you're, you're watching where I've seen the the winning side is the one that sticks to the facts, that is pragmatic, that's thoughtful. As soon as you start throwing stones, especially if you have an institutional base, if you have institutional investors and you have an activist who just laid out a very thoughtful plan, there was no attack, like sometimes there could be some pretty colorful language, but if it's focused on facts. It's not like these guys are just bad because I don't like Bob and whatever. If you're actually sticking to the facts around this happened, this failed, here's the problem, here's the solutions, that institutional investor, you have a way better chance of probably building a relationship with them. The company comes back out making really attacks on the activist as well. That could be really off-putting for for the institutional investor too. So really thinking about your shareholder base. And I would say, I hope no one even has to be involved in these situations. And often it happens because you don't have your finger on the pulse of who your shareholders are. And you'd be surprised how many times I've I've met companies where I've said, okay, let's review your top 20 shareholders have you like, when's the last time you met them? Well, I've never met them, or I haven't met most of them. Well, that's problematic, too. Let's reach out and build that relationship. And if anything, if anyone ever is worried about activism, I'd much rather have, you know, if I'm a CEO of a company or the investor relations team, I'd rather have that relationship with Fidelity or RBC GAM or whatever it is, before before that activist calls and sits down with them and says, start soliciting them, for a slate that they're going to be putting forward for the next special meeting or whatever it is. Yeah. What comes to mind there is now in investor relations, we're seeing the prevalence of more and more tools to be used. David White from Irwin was on the podcast and another big name that's just, we got the interview slated in and it's going to be recorded soon is coming on. And the software and the tools that are behind IR now are really, really great. So What tools do you use and how are you using them? Yeah, really great question. And I would say with any tool, it's only as good or platform or system or whatever it is, tech. It's only as good as the users in my view. So we're fans of Irwin. We use Irwin and I know David well. And so that's something that we we certainly use and leverage. There's some really great functionality there and I find it to be an excellent system. But there's so many other things today. And Often I come in also and do audits of what a company already has. And sometimes you have someone who's subscribed to everything and they're just not using it. So, but your question around, you know, which ones do I like? I really can't emphasize enough just the targeting tools, Irwin, and there's many others out there too. And there's a few others that we use, including PitchBook and Crunchbase and all of these different systems. But I think also it's the analytics that need to be leveraged. And so we actually, we've built out for our clients, 
monitoring that like, we can do media monitoring extremely well to understand like who's saying what, and then some other tools that kind of call it investor sentiment type of reports that will ultimately kind of scrape the web and chat rooms to understand what are investors saying about you. We use a lot of different AI tools like that to also understand, you know, that press release we put out last week, you know, was that impactful? Did it have an impact? And there's there's so much more. I mean, there's obviously everyone knows ChatGPT, which is a really great way. It's not going to replace us, I think, in any any sense, but first drafts of draft me a quote for a earnings release with positive EBITDA, giving me at least, you know, I've got to put it in my CEO's voice and add in their vision and everything else. So that's not a problem. But even just sometimes staring at a blank screen with the cursor pulsing is really hard. Yes. Give me a hundred hashtags for lithium or for a lithium project. So boom, 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 like that's all created. That has made our jobs a lot easier. Again, going back to my earlier comment, this junk drawer job, this job that career that's just evolved so much that can shave off a little bit of time so that we can be more effective in nurturing relationships. That's key. But also monitoring how many investor downloads of the investor deck did you get? Even just understanding or taking the time to reflect on the analytics around earnings, calls, who showed up and and who didn't this quarter and what's the read through on that and should we be concerned? There's a lot of really great tech. AI to create video. I don't know if you've ever tried that. We actually use some technology. My team is like far more smarter than I am, which is incredible. But we've been using these, essentially, it looks like a robot that will speak. And so as part of our employee onboarding, instead of me sitting here telling you, Corey, on like what our processes are at IR Labs and how we work with our clients, etc. You know, I could just punch in a paragraph of text that now a robot that looks like a human is going to read and say like, hey, Corey, welcome to IR Labs. You know, we're really excited to have you. And by the way, here's how we do this and this. Like, There's just so many things out there today that is just absolutely mind blowing. And we're using a lot of them. I think we all have to start using them more and more and they're going to get better and better. I'm fascinated with how, like I feel IR is really kind of, it's lagged behind certain industries within the public sphere far more ahead than others. Let's take even mining from oil and gas. Oil and gas is like, you know, we, we don't want to do anything that's, that's cutting edge. No, no, no. We'll stick with a paper press release if we can. The other side is, yeah, these tools that are coming in, are, they're going to make our, our industry much better. And I'm excited to see these companies like Irwin and, and the others who have access to a huge swath of data, how AI is going to make that more powerful, how that's going to change things. So it's exciting. I've really enjoyed our conversation, but keeping this within about an hour, I want to ask about books and media and different content. What keeps you entertained both for business and life? Oh, wow. I don't get a chance to read a lot for fun. I would say I like to actually stay really immersed in the LinkedIn community. I like to know what's going on out there with my clients and in the industry. So I actually use that as a way to kind of wake myself up in the morning and say goodnight in perusing there. But it is really important to like, I I do read Wall Street Journal and and some major newspapers around the world just to make sure that I understand what's going on. So I would say I spend more time informing myself that way than anything else. I love and this is just go to show my super geekiness is like, I love reading pitch decks. Like I love printing off an investor deck of someone's like, hey, I've got two on my desk that I'll be reading this weekend of really cool, groundbreaking disruptor type of technology or just in some really cool industries. I love understanding and I see it as a privilege to go, wow, this founder came up with an idea. I get to see what they're planning to do with the business, getting a look through in terms of what is the financial performance like or what is it? projected to be? And what's the market opportunity? So yeah, I would say I have a couple of favorite books that I read from time to time, and people will recommend things, but definitely a super geek for my job. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. I love being outside though, Corey. So I don't want to make it sound like I am a workaholic, even though I am, but it is really important to have balance and especially in the capital markets. And I'm sure a lot of people who follow you were in front of our screens all day long. And God forbid we miss a call or an email or something in these markets that is important to get back to in a timely manner. But 
I love going outside. I love being in nature. I love going for hikes and being able to, even if it means half a day on a Sunday of just turning off the devices. I think that is just so incredibly important, especially when we're all attached all the time. And in our industry, I don't think I've ever had a day off in 16 years because when you're wearing the investor relations hat, you're in some ways the company spokesperson and you never know what... You're always on. I know Murphy's Law is you take that well-deserved trip to Hawaii that you've kind of saved up for and then ultimately you're going to get, there's a major transaction that's going to happen or something is going to come up, but that's what keeps our world exciting. Yeah. That's a tough part about IR and your world. And that's partially why I'm not in IR. I just, I don't want that responsibility of we're always on as well, but if something happens and you're on vacation or you're, you're there, it's in the IR world, you have to be there. You do. It is material that has to go out in not when you can get to it in a couple of hours. And the lawyers are are at the mercy of that too, where they're ultimately having to play a role in that process amongst many, many others. And again, going back to how everyone wants that board role and a paid role, board roles are extremely attractive, but it's it's a hard job. It's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of risk that you're taking on. And you're having to be available as well as a board member that there's an unsolicited offer, an opportunistic transaction, or some sort of initiative that needs board input or approval. You got to make yourself available. The discussion about boards and board composition and actually using the board to the company's advantage is, I think, a whole conversation in itself. Perhaps we could do a whole other episode. I can't wait for that conversation. (laughs) Yeah. As we aim to wrap up here, any final thoughts for our audience? I've, re- I've really enjoyed this, but anything you'd like to leave the audience with? Oh, I've enjoyed this conversation too, Corey. And thank you again. And your questions are just so thoughtful. And thanks for letting me move in a couple of different directions. And if it's one takeaway, I think making sure that your story is solid. Storytelling is really so important these days. And I think a lot of people are hesitant to sometimes seek feedback from others and actually ask, hey, like, is this actually resonating or what am I missing here? I think having some humility around that or, or being a little bit vulnerable could really help a lot of companies right now who are trying to break through all the noise that exists and be unique. So I'd say make sure you got your story solid. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alyssa. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.